You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Thursday, November 8th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and Digital HKS hosted a discussion on European and American approaches to tech policy. The conversation featured Henri Piffo, a senior advisor with the Directorate General for Competition of the European Commission. Harvard Kennedy School's Muriel Royer and David Eves served as respondents. Welcome everyone. Thank you very much for uh, being here today. Uh, I see um, there is a nice crowd. I see everybody has recovered from the election and moving on to other topics. Well, thank you very much. I would like, um, first of all, to acknowledge uh, and thank the co-sponsors of uh, this event. Uh, which are the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and Digital HKS. I would also like to thank the Harvard Law School for bringing today um, our guest to Cambridge. Um, he is also taking part to an event which will last most of Friday at the law school. If you're interested on issues of competition law, you certainly can, can find this information for you. Um, for your information, today's talk is being audio recorded uh, for non-commercial purposes and uh, photographer will probably also be around. Um, it is my uh, great pleasure to uh, introduce uh, our guest today, Henri Piffaut, who is uh, currently an advisor to the Deputy Director General for Mergers at the DG competition of the European Commission. Uh, Henry has spent most of his career in the competition policy field. Uh, last year, he was the Commission Fellow uh, at the at Harvard University, uh, and he pursued research on the interaction of competition policy and platform uh, industries. Um, previously, he has been head of a unit for merger control um, of competition policy, uh, sorry, uh, for merger control and for conduct cases at the DG competition. Um, in this capacity and in the private sector, he has dealt with pay for delay cases in the pharmaceutical industry, conduct and merger cases in the energy, payment systems, IT and telecom industries, um, state intervention in the transport industry, and merger cases in a variety of industries. He holds uh, degrees in science and engineering, political science, and economics. To discuss um, um, Henry's presentation today, which is entitled The Future of Tech Policy, Comparative Perspectives from the US and Europe. Uh, to discuss uh, this uh, presentation today, uh, two people, David Eves, um, who is a public policy entrepreneur, an open government activist, and a negotiation expert, and who is also uh, currently a lecturer of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where he teaches on digital transformation, service delivery, open government, and open data. David is also, and you certainly, uh, many of you uh, certainly know him in such capacity, uh, uh, is the faculty director of Digital HKS, which seeks to raise the visibility of digital government work at the school. Um, and I'm going to be the second discussant. I'm going to, you know, be the European um, moderator for this uh, for this talk, I am a professor of political science from France, uh, but I teach at the Kennedy School of Course on Global Europe. I'm also a specialist of transnational democracy, um, and um, I'll, you know, serve as a discuss discussant moderator. Um, 
so as, a, as an introduction, it is quite remarkable um, to see that the major actors of technological innovation today are big, big concentrations of power, uh, and they are American. Uh, the famous acronym GAFA, which stands for uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple, to which we could add uh, other um, you know, letters, such as U for Uber, A for Airbnb or TaskRabbit, new platforms uh, which uh, transform and disrupt our, our lives. Um, and we all uh, appreciate uh, globally the, the benefits of such uh, innovative uh, firms, or at least we should, <laughs> but that's another issue. Um, and despite, despite the fact that we all enjoy their benefits, uh, the regulation of those entities by public authorities varies a lot on both sides of the Atlantic. With America being relatively hands-off, um, I'm hoping that uh, Dave will uh, say a word on the, the characteristics of such regulation. And Europe being much more cautious overall and hands-on. And this uh, from very different perspectives, but uh, which all converge. So be the perspective of consumers' privacy rights uh, with the famous uh, or infamous rights to be forgotten on the Internet to the general data protection regulation recently adopted by the EU, uh, to the workers' rights perspective, in particular a contingent or atypical uh, workers, uh, to the enforcement of competition rules aimed at preventing use and abuse of uh, market power, excessive concentration, and limitation of state aid by the powerful European Commission, where Margaret Vestager, the extremely proactive and bold European Commissioner for Competition has been going at American firms relentlessly, making the headlines and raising controversy um, over the famous or again infamous decisions such as the Apple decision, the Google shipping case, and the Google Android case. So uh, Henry was actually at the core of things when those cases uh, happened. And uh, he has been working closely with Margaret Vestager's team on these cases. And his expertise as a deputy director for mergers will help us understand the rationale and the specifics behind the reasoning of the commission and offer us a comparative perspective between US and EU approaches. So with no further ado, I leave the floor to our guest, Henry, and I, I ask you to uh, welcome uh, Henry. Bon appétit, everybody. I uh, apologize in advance. My, my French accent is very strong. So <laughs> if ever you don't understand something that I'm saying, just stop me and I will translate in English. Um, it really, there's no way for you guys to, to sit. It really breaks my heart to see you standing. Okay. So, first of all, how many of you uh, aware a little bit or to a large extent of the uh, European institutions and how uh, Europe functions at the, at the EU level. Okay, so quite a lot. And with EU competition law? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Still some, right. So I will try not to be too technical. Actually, I'm going to speak mostly about what we do in Europe and uh, I guess your questions will, uh, will uh, and your comments will make it possible to to make some contrast with what is being done or not done in here in, um, in the US, in America. So 
And first of all, I'm going to speak only about Europe. I'm not going to speak about what the member states are doing within the European Union, even if there is a, always some kind of emulation between the member states and their actions and the actions of the European institutions. Also, a, a word of warning, it's uh, what I'm saying today is just my own opinions. It does not by any way the European Commission, my own employer. So, some say that Europe has an issue with tech, with high tech. Why so? Well, a few days, you're aware that the, at the FTC in Washington, there have been uh, quite a few hearings on the future of antitrust. And uh, two days ago, I think, there was a presentation of a new study which um, is alleged to show, I didn't read it, so I'm just saying that it's alleged to show, that the GDPR, you know what the GDPR is? Yeah? I mean, don't hesitate to say what you don't know, because otherwise... Uh, General Data off. Protection Regulation. So it's a, it's a European regulation under which uh, went into force in, the, in May this year, which is supposed to, uh, to protect the, um, the rights of uh, European uh, consumers in as, to, as, as far as their privacy, or the data privacy is concerned. And, they, and that study, which was discussed at the uh, hearing at the, at the FTC, is uh, presumed to show that uh, since the adoption of the uh, GDPR and its implementation, the level of investment by venture capitalists in Europe in high tech would have gone down uh, tremendously, well, tremendously to, uh, to some extent. So Europe is is, uh, is creating by its regulation, that's the argument, uh, new barriers to um, to entry into innovation for um, high tech in Europe. Um, and then, obviously, you, um, Muriel was a uh, describing to you the, the string of cases that we, uh, where we have adopted decisions on a various legal uh, uh, basis. So one was against uh, Apple and the Republic of Ireland on the basis of state aid, where um, Apple would have had a sweet deal in, in terms of taxes. Another one was, uh, which is a very old one, against Microsoft back in the, in the early 2000s with um, hundreds of millions of, uh, of fines. Then there were two successive decisions against Google uh, Google Shopping and then Google Android in 2017-2018 which added up to something like um, uh, I think seven billion dollars in, in total in, in fines. So it seems really that Europe doesn't like high tech. My point today, that's a very long introduction to the introduction, but my point today is to try to explain to you that it's not at all the issue. The issue is that the um, high tech is raising a number of new issues that need to be addressed to the benefit of both um, innovation and European consumers. So, uh, unless, whenever you have a question, no, you don't, well, if you don't agree, just keep it for you. But if you have any clarification question, please don't hesitate to interrupt me. Now I'll go into the, um, why is it relevant to, uh, to have EU policies which target the, um, the high-tech uh, industry or high-tech in general and, and innovation. First of all, I would like to start with what are the issues that are raised, positive or negative, by high-tech. To me, and speaking at a very high level, they are, so, there are three of them. One is linked to market power. Another one is linked to uh, data or abuse of data, and I will explain uh, all of that. And the last one is, is linked to innovation. They are, and I'll start with the last one. There are tremendous, um, there's been tremendous welfare created by innovations and big data and, and, and big tech. We, uh, we all have our mobile phone and use uh, apps all uh, and every day, and uh, we wouldn't survive without that. By the way, I last, this year I spent two months on the, on the, on the boat 
and traveling between two continents without any um, app or mobile or internet connection, and it took me 10 days to get used to it. And so, <laughs> word of warning, don't get too addicted <laughs> to it. So, that's, that's one issue. We need to preserve the, the, the incentive to innovate. Now, there's issues which are linked to market power and, and data. What are these? Market power, to me, there are three of them. One is that when you have market power, you have always a tendency to abuse it. It's, it's natural to make even more uh, profits and, and to erect barriers to entry and to expansion to potential competitors. That's the first issue, so distortion of competition. A second one is gaming governments. So to take the Apple example, Apple had the choice between various offers in order to pay a minimum taxes. It, it decided to allocate its uh, revenue to Ireland with a sweet deal which was specific to Apple in Ireland, which amounted to, I can't recollect, I think it was 1.5% of its, um, the tax rate was something like 1.5% which is very, very low compared to what should be a, a normal tax rate. So for that reason, the commission found that there was state aid granted by the Republic of Ireland to, um, to Apple. And the last possibility of abuse of, of market power is, is um, and that's something which is, uh, I would say, broader, is in a way abuse of, of power vis-a-vis -vis labor. You've all heard about the, um, the issue of um, labor contracts or what kind of contracts are signed between, say, Uber and, and the drivers or between uh, even Airbnb and, and the homeowners. That's about market power. Now, if I turn to um, abuse of data, here we are completely out of the competition policy realm, but we are in the, in the realm of, um, of regulation. What are these issues? Well, privacy issues, you're all aware of that. Then there are societal aspects. I don't need to, uh, well, since we're here, we can speak about Cambridge Analytics. Analytica, and then there are also, and then part of the societal aspects are the, um, there are a number of studies which have shown that social networks or other networks can amplify prejudices in, in society and, and, uh, and polarize even more societies which may be already polarized at, uh, at, a, at a starting point. And then finally, in terms of abuse, possible abuse of data, there is what I call the discrimination vis-a-vis -vis businesses. So there have been a number of, um, of claims by uh, businesses which are, say, selling via a big um, uh, shop, uh, shopping uh, platform like Amazon, that they, there is uh, unfair use of the data that they generate by this uh, big uh, shopping uh, platform uh, to their detriment and, uh, and copycat products being introduced. I have absolutely no view on, on that, but it's just an, a, a, um, a claim that is being raised, or the same vis-a-vis -vis Google, where a number of people are saying that the outcomes of, of Google search are biased towards uh, Google services and or Google applications. So, broadly, these are all the issues. We cannot remain indifferent to these issues, and they are not going to solve by themselves. Actually, they have been there quite, for quite a while. So what should we do? And for that, Europe has at its um, has available a number of policies. There is competition policy that I'm going to, to speak a little bit about because that's what I do every day. Then there are a number of regulations which are linked to data and to, um, and to justice in a very broad sense of, uh, of that term. So since you're not that familiar with uh, competition policy, I'm going to describe it a little bit before I go into the, uh, the cases themselves. Competition policy has three and a half legs, or let's say four legs. The first one has to do with state intervention. 
it's, uh, it's what we call control of state aids. That may have two um, applications in terms of uh, high-tech companies. One, well, let's first describe what uh, control of state aid means. It means that uh, states, member states, cannot grant uh, subsidies that to companies or to uh, sector, industrial sectors that would lead to a distortion of competition. But in certain circumstances, we are welcome to grant such subsidies if they are going to create welfare in, in, uh, for society. For instance, in investing in, in high tech or in investing in, uh, in uh, say, fiber networks which wouldn't uh, be um, financially um, beneficial otherwise. So there is a policy, and there are a number of guidelines and instruments that have been developed by the Commission vis-a-vis -vis state aid, saying if you invest, you member states invest money in that direction vis-a-vis -vis innovation or vis-a-vis -vis, uh, telecom infrastructure, you're very welcome to do it. It has to be, you have to state and, and to prove that you have an objective which is going to create some welfare, and it has to be uh, so proportionate, not discriminatory. That's a positive aspect of state aid control. The negative aspect I've mentioned already with the Apple case, for instance. Second leg is control of conduct. You cannot agree on prices or quantities, and if you have a position of market power, you cannot abuse it. And here, obviously, there are the, the cases about um, uh, Google and, and Microsoft. I will come back later to the Google cases. Third leg is merger control. You cannot create or strengthen positions of, uh, of market, power, market power through transactions. And there have been a number of uh, transactions that have been reviewed and that uh, actually dealt with the high-tech sector, like uh, um, Facebook, WhatsApp, or more recently, um, uh, Apple Shazam. And I'll, I'll come back a little bit on, uh, on these. And the um, fourth leg, or half leg, is advocacy. Why is advocacy so important in terms of high-tech? Very broadly speaking, the um, when a regulation is proposed by the Commission to the uh, Parliament and the Council, and then there's a, uh, there's a trialogue between the three institutions, and at the end of the day, hopefully, there's a regulation which is adopted, that regulation may come out of a service, let's say um, DG Justice or DG Home or whatever. But in, before they propose that uh, regulation, they consult with people like us, and our role there is to make sure that the regulation is going to be as pro-competitive as possible. The, the, the objective of the regulation may be, say, privacy protection, but there are many ways to protect privacy, and some ways may be more pro-competitive than others. And that's, uh, that's our role there. And why is it so important for high-tech? Well, many of the um, companies that are present in high-tech actually run platforms. And what is a platform? A platform is, in a way, a market. So it's all about market design, and uh, but market design is very much actually our job, or control of market design is very much our job at um, DG Competition. So these, these were the four legs of um, competition policy. Now how I'd like to spend a some time on, I think yeah, I still have some time. Sure. Sorry? Oh, yeah, I mean, they have been systematically appealed and they are before the Court of Justice. So there's no decision. There's no decision yet. And there's always a chance that the Commission will lose. <laughs> um, 
So, if I don't want to spend too much time on, on this case, but I, what I, the message I would like to, to pass on to you in terms of competition policy and, and, uh, and control of conduct, and also in merger, of merger control, is what we pay attention to is really whether a, uh, a market, quite often competition in these uh, industries is competition for the market, not competition in the market. So what matters in terms of competition is really to make sure that there are no artificial barriers to entry which are created either by transaction or by the behavior of a, a company, like Google, for instance. So if you look at the, uh, at the Google cases, like uh, Google Shopping, I mean, who here has used Google Shopping in his life or her life? Okay, two persons. Before the decision, actually, I didn't know that Google Shopping existed. So it may seem very ane anecdotal or really uh, useless to have adopted such a decision, but what is important are the principles which are behind because they apply to Google its f in its future behavior, but also they may apply to any uh, platform which has market powers. And what, what is behind that? The, what is behind that is that the, um, in that case, what Google was afraid of, in my opinion, is that there would be developments of vertical, that the development of, of uh, vertical search engines, so Google is a horizontal search engine, but vertical search engines would at the end of the day threaten the position of, of Google in horizontal. And so by, um, Treating in a preferential way its own Google Shopping application, or you know, it could be a, be a Google Travel application or whatever, it was making the life of competitors, which would be as efficient of Google as Google Shopping, more complicated, and therefore it would rise the barriers to entry, and therefore it would postpone the possibility that somebody would develop a vertical search engine which could challenge the position of, of Google. The same goes with the Google Android. Android case. So the idea there is really when you have a dominant undertaking, a, a, a company with market power, what we are really after is to make sure that it's not to create additional market barriers to entry or expansion to competitors which would be as efficient as this um, undertaking. Now the one string of cases that I'm not going to mention but I will still mention uh, cases which have to do with online distribution. And here, the, uh, the uh, decisions that have been adopted by the Commission are all about market design. How would you structure the, the exchanges on, that plat on these platforms, the interactions between merchants and, and the platforms themselves, so that it would be as pro-competitive as possible? So really, two, two ways for competition policy to have an impact here. It's barriers to entry, because it's competition for the market, and its market design, which is something which is really specific to the um, to the high tech industry. To some extent, you could see that as well into energy, because of the, uh, all the uh, markets that have been created for pollution, for instance. But it's it's really specific to the uh, mostly to high tech. Now, one last word before going into other uh, policies. It's about merger control. What do we we have been accused? both in Europe and in the US of having been very naive in, our, um, in the way that we have been assessing mergers in these industries. For instance, we, uh, according to, to critics, we should never have accepted the, uh, the acquisition of Instagram and then of WhatsApp by Facebook. We uh, are not looking at uh, many acquisitions of very small uh, undertakings or, or intellectual property by, uh, by the big guys because they escape our jurisdiction, but they are actually 
avoiding that these um, small guys would uh, later develop into uh, football competitors to them. So, but the question is, how do you deal with that? How do you anticipate that somebody may, at some point in the future, become a competitor, a large-scale competitor to uh, the Google business model or the Facebook business model or Uber or whatever? That's a question which is very tricky to, um, to answer. And we have, in my honest opinion, we haven't found yet the answer. But the, the, the question, we cannot be perfect. So the question is always, should we go towards over-enforcement or under-enforcement? And that's a question that has not been settled yet. The, the, uh, the way we, look, we have been looking at these cases, so the last would be um, Microsoft LinkedIn or Apple Shazam, is whether the combination of data, most, mostly to caricature market power may derive from data sets, and whether the combination of, of data sets is going to create a position that may not be replicable for third parties. And therefore, in order to compete, you would need to, to have access to this data, which is not something that, that we should fail. That's all about competition policy. Very, very quickly now, I'll sp spend two minutes on the, <laughs> on the other um, as aspects of European policy. These have, is that me who is doing all that noise? These have to do mostly with, um, with data and privacy. So there was the, um, as I was describing, there, w there has been the um, uh, adoption of the GDPR which came into force a few months ago, um, which has some very interesting from the competition uh, perspective or pro-competitive perspective aspects. It, it provides for some so-called portability of, uh, of data. So what matters in, uh, in, the, uh, in the high tech field is, is really the data that you generate and, uh, and, and to whom it belongs, this pri private data, not after it has been processed or aggregated to some extent, to whom it belongs. The GDPR, says that at least to some extent it's, uh, it may, some critics are saying that it's, it's uh, too narrow in terms of definition, but it, it belongs to the individuals. Is it going to have a pro-competitive aspect? Well, it makes it possible to uh, port your data to somebody else, but then what are the incentives for you as an individual to port your data to somebody else? So we, we have not so solved that aspect. Then there have been um, adoptions of e-privacy um, instruments. There was a, a proposed package in, uh, back in, uh, I think, on 26th of April uh, of this year, which targets merchant platforms and search platforms, search engines, and aims at um, having more transparency of what is, what is being done and how the outcomes of searches or the outcomes of, uh, of when, you, when you want to buy a, a given product how these outcomes are structured and why they are structured in, in a certain way and to make sure that there's a differentiation and identification of the services which are those which belong to the platform and those which belong to third parties and that there shouldn't be discrimination between the two of them. This uh, proposed uh, regulation as well um, provides for protection of the data that belongs to the third party merchants which would um, um, sell via the, uh, the merchant platform and so on. That's now subject to a, um, the trilateral dialogue, or tri trialogue between the Council, the uh, European Parliament, and, and, and the Commission, and there has not been yet an adoption. But here again, you will find the, the two keys of all these regulations in terms of competition impact, which are portability and possible of possibility of interoperability. Um, I think 
I will stop that. I, I hope I've convinced you that we... Uh, wait, 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 you're not done. You're going to have a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at least in what I've uh, presented, uh, I will have convinced you that the, um, the aim is really to, um, to reconcile, first, the incentives to innovate, and second, to limit the possibilities that these, um, these great creations of, uh, of high-tech would, uh, would create a situation of um, abuses in terms of market power or in terms of, uh, of data. Thank you. Fine. Thank you very much, Henry. So, um, um, and I want to speak also for the non-specialists. I'm, I'm assuming there are a lot of uh, tech-oriented people, which is good, and uh, also maybe some people who are not specialists, which is also good, because I think here at the Ash Center, we try to discuss things from a public, democratic perspective. And what is interesting is to fully understand the implications for freedom, uh, you know, for, for democracy, for all of us, of, of tech and, and tech policy. Um, so first, if I can summarize in a few words uh, and, you know, adding to your perspective, which is really uh, in the core of things, which you have the expertise of competition uh, roles, competition law in Europe. Uh, and if, if I just add my public policy perspective from a European point of view, um, I think this is, you know, those complex decisions, they actually uh, convey and conceal sometimes very interesting dynamics of power questioning. So when the Apple decision happens, and uh, we, we are currently uh, engaged in, in writing a, a policy paper on this Apple decision, which really is very interesting from the point of view of democracy. Because what uh, Margarete Vestager uh, basically did with, with, your, with her team was to force a state to recover money from a firm. So it's a firm which had benefited from a sweetheart deal, right? And the amount is pretty big, 14, uh, 14 billion euros. It's quite substantial. Uh, and in our world where, uh, you know, states have no, no more money, we've had austerity in Europe, it's difficult, uh, people don't want to pay taxes, uh, there is rising inequalities, this is a very political issue. And so I totally understand that from the perspective of America, uh, there's a bunch of people who are actually very pro-European regulations and who are, uh, you know, criticize the delusions of the gig economy, uh, among which for, uh, especially for working people, for the atypical workers of, um, of the platforms. Uh, and, and they totally embrace this kind of regulation. They are very interested in those regulations. So I think we, we really need to, you know, to, to question, to ask as many questions as, as we want to fully understand the, the impact of those decisions. So I know this decision a bit because I worked with you. I know less about how, you know, uh, maybe the Google search decision would be interesting from the point of view of the concentration of power, of limiting this concentration of power, which in the end is unfair to consumers uh, and to competitors. But I would say just three more things and then uh, leave the floor to uh, uh, Dave. So in general, I think uh, European regulations are driven by three ideas. So uh, limit, uh, balancing the market and uh, market operators by other principles such as social justice, social rights of workers, right? Transparency, um, to make uh, known that, for instance, to, uh, to workers that their conditions are determined by such and such and they have recourses in court to, you know, to empower people. And individual rights, 
in the case of uh, data privacy, it's very much driven by individual rights. So uh, really the EU, uh, behind its very technical regulations, has some policy goals which are uh, easily graspable and that policy advocates um, here have well understood. Now, uh, I don't think we have covered the, the American counterpart or the, the, the argument that uh, any American who is well-versed uh, or less well-versed in those issues could, could you know, uh, address you and say, well, okay, wh what about innovation? You know, innovation in Europe, uh, I'm, I'm not struck by the uh, intense innovation in Europe. There has been this innovation gap between the U.S. and, and Europe since the 60s already. And why is that? Maybe, maybe the regulation uh, is, uh, is responsible for that. So I turn now to Dave, um, who is um, American, well aware of the tech Excellent. business. Americans are actually very clever in that they said <laughs> the Canadians do their work for them. Right. Um, uh, uh, to deliver a softer counter blow. Um, so maybe just a, a few things. First is, I actually think the Apple Ireland case is not relevant. It's not really about tech. This is about a large company that you know, had a sweetheart deal. This is any big company qualifies. So I just I feel like it's outside the bounds of the scope of this conversation. It's not really interesting to me because it's not really about tech. It's just about a large player. The Irish cut a deal and the Europeans don't like it, then they can go after them. But it, whether it was Exxon or Apple or you know my consulting company, yeah. which would never have that problem, um, uh, you know it doesn't really matter. So that's the first thing I just want to say. I just want to bound our conversation a little bit. The second I think I would say is um, I think we are at a moment where we want to be thinking about the regulatory regimes that. Uh, for these industries. Um, I'm a huge fan. I'm open to students for next year because this year is never going to happen. But I'm a huge fan of Carlotta Perez. Um, she has a wonderful book called um, uh, Technology Revolution and Financial Capital, uh, which I'd love to do a book club on for students who want to help me do that at some point. Um, and she says, you know, like, listen, uh, she tracks historically large periods of innovation, so say like the railways, and she goes, you know, they, they follow an S-curve. Initially, there's like people playing around with the technology. It's not really very interesting. Then all of a sudden, it starts to get interesting. Uh, the venture capital equivalent of its day starts to pour in. Um, the industry starts to take off. Huge discrepancies between what the status quo is and what the technology offer appear. So large wealth is created. Like this is the eras of the Rockefellers or the Elon Musks. Like that kind of wealth gets accrued. And then there's a regulatory crisis where suddenly the technology is confronting um, is displacing workers or is displacing um, or is making rules or confronting rules that don't make sense for it. That regulatory crisis could last a day, it could last for 20 years or even 50 years, but there's a fair bit of turmoil. Then a new regulatory regime emerges, and one of the goals of that regime, in line with what our European friends here are talking about, is it figures out ways to more equitably distribute the wealth and benefits of that technology. And then that's like that's like kind of the golden period. And then uh, the, the returns of that technology start to diminish. So you start to try to export it to other, like the periphery. And then kind of like the returns get really bad. And all the money that invested it is now kind of starting to pour into whatever is going to come next. And the cycle repeats itself. So steel is an example of this. Railways are an example of this. Combustion engine. And so I think we're probably, uh, oh, uh, so I think we're probably at a point now where uh, we are, we're at that point where we're, we're entering the kind of regulatory crisis phase. And is that phase going to last one year, five years, or 20 years, or 50 years? Unclear to me, but I accept that that's where we're at. So that's just to kind of situate us. I think the big, one of the challenges I often experience when I'm having conversations with people who want to talk about how to regulate the tech sector is 
Um, there's a lot of people who want to do it, and so they appear to be in one camp. But the reasons they want to do it are very, very different. And the different reasons create conflicting goals where the object, like the thing that you would do might aid one but actually impede one of the other ones. So do you want to regulate tech because you just don't like really big companies and you think large companies that are powerful are a problem, and so you want to shackle them because you're scared of them becoming more powerful than the state or being able to influence the state? Are you scared of large companies because they might um, not because of what they might do to the state and capture it, but because they might snuff out competition. That's a different, you're actually in a different camp. Are you worried about uh, privacy and you're just worried about like, you know, people's privacy being violated or more data being collected than they're comfortable with? You actually don't care how big the companies are. You're just worried about privacy and, and what that means. That's a very, very different reason to be wanting to get into the space to regulate. And so often I end up confronting people who either are in one of those camps but think they're part of a much bigger camp because like surely everybody is here to do, for the same reasons I'm here. Turns out that they're not. Or worse, actually hold all of these goals simultaneously and therefore propose solutions that actually will help with one of those problems but will actually probably make one of the other problems worse. So, so for example, one could imagine breaking up Facebook because you just think they're too big. But if you're worried about fake news and the, and the, um, and the kind of the information environment, creating more social uh, media players whose incentive is to try to capture eyeballs and to get you engaged might prompt them to want to create uh, favor algorithms that are more likely to capture eyeballs and therefore are more extremist. Yes. Let me, no, I feel like. Are you saying that competition law is not the right tool to, uh, to regulate those? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying let's be really clear what our goal is. Okay. So um, would actually run counter to the goal of trying to create a, a cleaner environment. So it could actually be that breaking up these organizations will make things worse and not better if your goal is about the information environment. So I want us to be really, really clear, or I would like for people to get really clear about what their goal is in pursuing this course of action. And it's not to say that you can't have four or five goals, but you better rank them in some form of priority so that you have a strong sense of the actions you're taking are going to solve the problems that you think are most important, and you're prepared to sacrifice on some of the other issues that, you, that are lower on your, on your turn, and actually willing to be counterproductive on trying to solve those problems. So that's a, I want to make sure that we're really thinking about the goal. The, the second piece for me is, you know, is our regulatory regimes always the right answer, and are they always effective? So, um, you know, we've uh, our friends at the Shorenstein Center, just across the hallway, often talk about the crisis in journalism that occurred uh, in the 20s and 30s. Well, we had real disinformation problems, like very, very serious disinformation problems, and um, and also high net with with individuals who controlled media platforms that really everybody was accessing. And this led to a little bit of a crisis of were those wealthy individuals allowed to use these platforms to steer conversations in ways that they wanted? And we didn't come to kind of a regulatory solution to that problem exclusively or even in the majority. There was things like uh, they talked about the Hutchinson Commission, which was an, an effort to try to understand what is the responsibility of the owners of these media outlets. And, it, and that led to all sorts of norms, not regulations, norms, which was you know, editorial is separate from journalism. The business part of the organization is separate from uh, the organization that collects the news. So like the, the business owner shouldn't be saying, hey, you can't go investigate these companies that my friends own. We separated those, but not really through a regulatory regime, through a norm regime. 
and that gave us a lot more flexibility, and those norms weren't always perfectly adhered to, but they actually worked, they served us quite well until like kind of the mid-2000s when uh, the, the journalism industry started to like really fully implode. Can you uh, ask what's the difference between a norm regime and a regulatory regime? Well, in a regulatory regime, you actually have like very firm rules, and you have a regulator who can impose sanctions upon people who violate those, whereas a set of norms are, hey, like, there are rules about how I can behave you. Like, I can't just go kill or hit this gentleman. But there's norms where, like, I could just be mean to him, but that would be violating all sorts of kind of subtle group norms. norms. But even agree-to norms, like, even agree-to norms that are actually pretty transparent and visible to us, and it would be pretty, uh, people would frown on me and I would probably get socially isolated if I suddenly turned on you and treated you badly. But, but we don't rely on a regulatory regime for me to, okay, to engage that. So kind of a, yeah, and you could have a set of industry norms. Yeah, all right, great. Also, I would question like our history of, a, of, of regulations in this sector has not been particularly strong. So when I think of like the last time the Europeans got really involved in tech in a big way, it was to, I think, very appropriately sanction Microsoft over the dominance of um, the IE platform and its control and access of control over the web. The problem is, is that regulations the Europeans did did absolutely nothing to make that industry more competitive or to change the kind of dynamics of that. In fact, the, when, the, when the rules the Europeans finally introduced came into effect, Firefox at that point was already becoming like a fairly interesting player and had not really benefited from the regulatory regime that the Europeans created. And what's worse is Firefox was not a competing company. It was a nonprofit that was relying on donations from various players. So even if we, can, even if we think the Europeans helped create Mozilla and helped create Firefox, which it definitely did not, it, um, <laughs> It, it wasn't like it created a competing player who was like vying for market power um, in the form of a commercial enterprise. So I'm not really convinced that that's a great example. And even here in GDPR, I hear some stories from people who are like, you know, Google ad revenue in Europe has actually gone up because the regulatory regime has made it harder for other players to participate in this space. So it actually has, depending on what your goal, the perverse effect of actually helping Google because now other players can't actually fulfill all the regulatory obligations that GDPR creates, so it allows the larger players to, to do better. And, and that is certainly, again, this, this conflict of goals matters a lot to me. I'm reminded a lot of Marlboro, the cigarette company, which for years fought all sorts of cigarette rules and all sorts of like reconciliation with government, and then one day turned around and said, no, actually, we want to help you create the worst, most like, aggressive regime that you could possibly conceive of. And it's because Marlboro determined that it, would, it could better compete in a hyper-aggressive regulatory regime than almost all of its competitors. So it was like, let's shift the market to that world as quickly as possible. I could easily imagine a Facebook and a Google turning around being like, yeah, let's, let's let the Europeans go crazy. Because if they do, they will create a regulatory regime that's so onerous and so difficult, no one will ever be able to compete with us because complying with all these rules will be so expensive. You have to achieve scale before you can do it. And good news, we're the only people with scale. So. Uh, then I would just want to go and talk about, like, I do think that we do need new rules. I just want to make sure we're really focusing on what we think are the tech, what are the rules that are going to impact the tech sector in the right way. So I do think we have new forms of organizations, like, or I think they at least feel new because they're new at scale to us. But kind of the platforms, I do think are really interesting. I have a lot of time thinking about how you would regulate platforms, and I really struggle with this because it's, America has actually had a fairly, America has been an aggressive re regulator in many places. It just had a very sectoral approach. So uh, your data as students is actually all highly, highly regulated. I cannot do whatever I want with it. And in the healthcare space, that is true. They just don't have a kind of a general rule around privacy. Um, I try to think about, are there general platform rules we could think about? And I struggle with that. And a sectoral approach feels really, really challenging. 
because it's just like that's going to be constantly evolving and changing. But one thing I, I do, one thing I do feel about kind of platforms is I'm a kind of I'm emerging at the place where I'm like, listen, if you operate a market, if you operate a two-sided market, you can't sell on that platform. So like, I, I do find it problematic that Amazon can look at all the, what's getting sold across its platform, identify the things that are, are that sell well, that are cheap, determine that it has the scale to then build to, to offer those things at a lower price, and go over and take to that market. And that's basically what Amazon Basics are. So if you ever bought like an Amazon Basics cable because you hate Apple so much that you want refuse to buy their expensive cables. What you're really doing is you're looking at Amazon, looking at its data, figuring out what it can sell profitably, and benefiting from the fact that it's offering the platform. But if we really believe in that rule, I start to go, well, I would want to apply that universally. So then I would be like, OK, European regulators, let's go after Carrefour, like the big um, um, shopping company, like the people who run shopping smalls, because ev or not, sorry, that run grocery stores, because every grocery store is itself a platform for a market. And those people are selling shelf space. Like, those things don't just randomly appear on the shelf. Like, you choose if you're high or low on the shelf, and you're paying for that shelf space. And then they're also looking at their sales data to figure out, um, oh, like, so now I have like a Whole Foods 360 brand because I look to see what people buy and I can offer a generic version that's slightly less price. Well, I'm like, that's the same thing that Amazon's doing, just not at a scale that maybe you're uncomfortable with. But if we're going to have rules, let's make sure we have these rules and we scale them entirely across the economy. I have just one more point and then I'll. Okay, because it's a lot to digest already, so I would like uh, everybody to be able to process. Oh, okay. The well, let, me, let me go. Uh, the final, and then, so let me just take a few cheap shots um, <laughs> to, to close so that I, I maybe um, I make my American friends feel like they were, uh, you know, at least offended. I, I, do, <laughs> I do worry, like, I, I am not, I'm not against the, European, the Europeans being aggressive in this space, but I do worry about us fracturing the world into some big, policy regimes. I kind of think there's probably four that will emerge. There'll be an American world, a European world, an Indian world, and a China world. And most people will look at the China world and say, we definitely don't want that. Um, and then the rest of us, like the Canadians and the, you know, the Bangladeshis and things like that, will have to opt in to whatever regime that we want. But we'll have really very little agency in choosing what the rule set is that we have. So um, I think maybe I would prefer, as a small actor, I would prefer a, a single regime that my country has agency in helping develop, rather than having to pick on one of, the, one of the regimes that a large player gets to develop because they happen to have market power, which doesn't feel fair. And I would also just yeah. say, this is maybe the best thing that's happened to Europe, because I gotta be honest, Europe's been pretty asleep at the wheel when it comes to regulatory issues. It's the Americans that went after FIFA, it's the Americans that went after VW, and so uh, when I look at like, kind of like what's been going on in the world, I'm like, this is the best channel changing that's ever happened. So I'm excited to do it. I would just like to see it applied more universally. All right. Thank you very much, Dave. That's a very encouraging <laughs> American point of view. Uh, well, yeah, no, we are here to um, you know, uh, start a dialogue, not, uh, not another transatlantic war. We have enough of these <laughs> in high places. So uh, I would. Um, Maybe um, keep three important points from your um, uh, your talking points. The, the necessity to be very clear about our goals when we regulate and to prioritize well. Um, your fear of instoring uh, competitive regulatory regimes in the world, and uh, to be um, uh, to be fair, it's true that Europe has uh, regulatory ambitions in the world. Uh, there's no denying that. And there's no denying that uh, maybe Europe is a bit uh, hypocritical or maybe a bit unfair when wanting to regulate uh, America. Uh, and 
when it perceives America as, as a threat, because since the 60s, we are lagging behind America in terms of uh, technological innovation. So of course, this reproach cannot be, um, cannot not be made. Um, and um, the kind of norms of common norm or common regime that small operators such as yourself would benefit from. I see an interesting bridge with one of your points, Henry, that maybe you didn't get to yet, but uh, the, the how to, to spread and to diffuse technological innovation without those massive concentrations of power. That may be, that may be a, an interesting question. But do, do you want to, to address some of the points that uh, Dave made, which are, um, I think, important? And um, at least uh, seem very different from the European approach. So uh, is, it, is it really that different? Is it like, do we need to get, uh, you know, irritated by the European approach? Or is there more in common that, than what we may think? How, uh, how do you, as a European regulator, receive those remarks? Well, I, I don't, first of all, I don't feel as a regulator because well, yeah, <laughs> I'm an enforcer. <laughs> yeah, an enforcer. Oh, okay, that's worse. <laughs> <laughs> Or better, just a different <laughs> role. Exactly. Um, but so the, the the European system is in its um, in its institutions and the way that um, actions are taken is is very different from the US one. So that leads inevitably to uh, to um, regulatory regimes which are very different as well. There was there was a um, very interesting. Um, there's actually a very interesting comparison to be made between what has been developed for telecoms in Europe and in the uh, US. Well, in Europe, we decided to develop a regulatory regime which was based on market power. Whereas in the US, the regulatory regime has been more hybrid in terms of uh, objectives and in terms of, uh, of, of criteria. What you have today, <laughs> that's my point. <laughs> uh, the telecom. I, telecom, uh, yeah, yeah. You, it's an interesting, European it's an interesting more competitive? point because telecom is much more expensive in the US than in Europe, I can tell you. And <laughs> I will not let this point escape. I want to know why I paid so much for my telephone communications here in the US and I paid almost nothing in Europe. That's a very concrete point. And on this point, I hope Europe, uh, you know, highlights us a bit because I would like, uh, I would like my phone less expensive. <laughs> I think that the, the reason why it happened is that the, um, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Okay. The reason why it happened is that quite often the issues first emerge in, in terms of competition cases. And then the competition enforcer, i.e. Uh, me and the others, we say, well, we, we can't do that. We can deal with that. It's not a competition issue. So we have a case there, sure, but it's not going to solve the issue, which is a much more, uh, um, um, systemic one, you, uh, you need to act on a, from a regulatory perspective or you need to, uh, to create some, uh, some kind of norms or, or you know, um, how do you say, um, guidelines that are agreed within the industry to try to address uh, this issue first and then if it doesn't work, then we get into a regulatory regime. But quite often you, you see the issues arising first in the competition field and then going elsewhere. And that's what happened with telecoms, where it emerged first with us, we adopted a range of a number of decisions which were really at the limit of what is competition policy and then it was taken over by um, by regulation based on, on market power with i think good impact in um, in uh, on, on the markets if you if you look at now what's happening with um, data privacy for instance you can see that there are a number of cases made in uh, member states or at the european level in zero price markets or the zero price side of a of a um, 
of a, a two or three-sided market on system, where we s the argument goes in saying, well, there's competition quality, and the quality is the level of protection of privacy, which is, and it's a very personal opinion. I think it should be completely outside of the of competition assessment. It's not an opinion which is shared by, uh, by my colleagues or even by my commissioner. But the, we, sh we should not be dealing with that. It should be some, somebody else who is dealing with that. The reason why I, I, I made representation, this presentation first in terms of, uh, you remember I was saying, well, there are two issues. There is innovation, there is market power which may be abused, and there is data which may be abused as well. There is a strong link between data and market power in these industries. And so what I would expect is that you would see developing, and I'm not sure I'm answering any question, but I'm making a new point, <laughs> is what you would, you would see developing in, uh, in the data fields or in the, or in the possible abuse of data fields, a regime based on market design and based also on, on uh, market power principles because of the equivalence that there is between data and of the holding of data and market power. Yes, uh, did you want to respond to yeah. that? You Maybe, uh, no, let's do some questions. Yeah, I, I have some thoughts. Right, but yeah, I'd like to discuss a little bit the state aid idea. <coughs> put into an American concept, it would be like the Federal Trade Commission, which held the, okay, like the, trade commission which held the IRS the right way to collect taxes. Right now, there is a large contest among the states and cities in the United States for getting the next office for Amazon. And in fact, they may have two offices. And they are offering various tax incentives, which as the fiscal regulator of their country or their, their jurisdiction, they feel it's good to give up some taxes in order to get certain businesses and certain employment. I think it's the, the, the height of appropriating someone else's responsibility for your commissioner to tell Ireland you have no right to make this deal with your fiscal authority, with your fiscal purse. Uh, I do hope you lose at the European Commission because you have even said you know more about transfer pricing than the OECD and people who are experts in transfer pricing. And I think that's a great overreaching by the Commission for Regulation of Competition. So uh, <laughs> your, your over, overreach of the Commission is not for the Commission to tell the Irish state, but even if, uh, Dave, I'm sorry, this is out of the tech uh, realm, apparently state aid uh, is on people's mind. I mean, and maybe one day it comes into the tech. Uh, so, so the Commission telling the Irish state recover the money is usurpation of fiscal power. You're deciding as a fiscal authority of your country how you would spend, because this is called tax expenditure. Yeah. You would decide how you would spend it. Just like the states in the United States are, are competing to get Amazon yeah, yeah, yeah. to build the headquarters there because they think, well, we'll lose tax revenue, but we'll gain employment, we'll gain prestige, and that. Uh -huh. And it's but that kind of arrogance that explains Brexit to such So, how do you respond to that, Only To the arrogance point? Well, that's part of it. Okay. No, um, so uh, state aid regime has been uh, put in place in the in the treaties initially as an instrument of integration. The uh, the objective of uh, of signing the uh, first the uh, steel and coal treaty and then the the treaties of Rome was to have a, a, a integration of the markets within Europe. And so, 
why competition tools, competition regime based on, on sales and then uh, on contact, to avoid that um, new barriers to entries, to barriers to trade between member states would be erected either by state, uh, by state intervention, by favoring national champions, or by the companies uh, through their, their behavior. The regime has been there for quite a while. There has been a refining of the way state aids have been yeah. applied. I'm, I'm getting to that. And it has been refined in the sense that the, um, you may have perfectly uh, reasonable objectives in terms of public policy to invest public money vis-a-vis -vis some companies, on some companies, but that needs to be proportionate. So if, if you are in a situation like the reverse bid with Amazon shopping around, what you may end up with is that there is excessive money, state money and public money, your money, being spent on getting Amazon, uh, said having offices in uh, in Queens or in uh, in uh, close to, to Washington D.C. and much more than would have been necessary actually to achieve the um, the public benefits of, of Amazon having their headquarters there or the headquarters two and three. If I turn now to um, to the um, Irish case, it's it may be perfectly fine for Ireland to attract uh, companies. In, on its territory, and for that, it's very simple. You have a lower tax rate than anywhere else in Europe, and people come. Why have a specific deal with that company? That's that's the the issue that is there. And um, even assuming that there was a proper objective, is it proportionate to spend as much money, so 14 billions, in order to have Apple locate its revenues in Ireland or not? And the answer of the of the Commission through a, an assessment and the uh, and the assessments made by the Commission are always uh, made with the um, protection of the rights of defense. So they, there was a dialogue with both Apple and the Republic of Ireland on that, is to say, no, that's, a, that's excessive spending. Now, it's specific, and it's, it's not an easy case, and we'll see whether the, the court actually confirms that the Commission was right or not, because taxation is a member state's responsibility. It's not a responsibility at the level of of Europe, of, yeah, of Europe. Yeah, and, and that's where there's a tension, and, and we'll see what the outcome is. It's going to be very interesting. It, it's, I would put it at 50-50. But I think the Commission was right to adopt the decision, because that's, that's a, a, a water that needed to be tested. In, in the, uh, and to take again the uh, New Year's point, there's, there's an issue of, of large corporations, notably in the high-tech sector, because uh, many of the revenues are linked to IP, so you, you can put the IP in, in, in a given country where you benefit from a, a, a better tax regime, like in Luxembourg or in, in Ireland. There's an issue of a, of a, of a, uh, of a power balance between uh, companies and member states. But, okay. Right. Okay. So do we have uh, other questions? Yes. Um, the lady with a red scarf here. Can you introduce yourself? Hi there. I'm Emma Margolin. I'm a mid-career MPA student here at HKS. Um, I wanted to follow up on David's point about specific policy goals and how pursuing one uh, might get in the way of pursuing others. Um, let's say your policy goal is uh, policing information disorder. What would a specific regulation look like um, if that is your goal, and what other goals might such a regulation run afoul of? So, um, so I think it will be it will be much easier to regulate disinformation if you have fewer platforms on which people are having conversations. So if there's only Twitter and there's only Facebook, it's a lot easier to regulate and understand what's going on than if there's 40,000 40, of those. It's be much, much harder to track across all of them and see what's going on. So 
if, if you had a, and, and we actually, in some ways, we accepted that in the pre-digital era. Um, if you look at most yeah. communities, it's not like there were 10,000 newspapers. Like we kind of settled into one broadsheet for most cities. It was actually kind of, we didn't regulate, but the norms were easier to enforce. And frankly, the advertisers liked it that way because it was easier for the advertisers to enforce those norms when you had a single kind of broadsheet in each city. In each city. So, um, so for me, like you might want to, you might want to concentrate the number, like the the power into a few players, and then regulate them more aggressively than try to break them up and have have a whole bunch of players. I would argue we, we kind of broadly made the same decision when it comes to a lot of other sectors, like the auto sector. We've regulated them to a degree where it's very, very hard for new entrants. Like nobody thought that a company like Tesla could ever come to an existence because we, we had a regulatory regime about managing emissions and managing all sorts of things around that that made it very, very hard. But those, those meant other policy goals we had. And we said new competition was just a lower ranking policy goal than other goals that we had. Right, that's interesting. Can I just, uh, uh, so this would mean, and this is why I interrupted you to ask, uh, does it mean that competition policy is not the right tool to regulate? Because competition policy typically will try to fracture those big actors into small actors to have a more perfect yeah, market. It may right? not be. Yeah, and so I recognize in your, uh, in your point, uh, current you know, trends of thought that precisely say that. Like, yeah, it's easier to regulate a kind of a almost a monopolistic market because then the actors are well identified and easier to regulate. And this is this was the world of the, you know, of the 50s, uh, and it was a very livable world for everyone because uh, capital was organized and labor was organized. But okay, uh, is this possible with the technologies at uh, at, at stake? I mean, it's just like uh, overnight you have uh, 20 new platforms who spread uh, misinformation. And uh, they, you know, they are pretty tentacular. I, so feasibility. And to your point about uh, we need new actors uh, who elaborate the common regulation, what could those actors be? And again, Henry, in your point, I think um, sometimes Europe is perceived to have a big hammer and try to <laughs> crash, uh, uh, fly with a big hammer. But what would it look like from a European perspective to have those semi-regulatory bodies, I don't know, uh, professional instances of, of normification, if you don't want to call them regulation, that could, uh, you know, somehow discipline or tame those markets, provided that platforms are actually markets. I'm not sure that platforms are markets, but that's probably another question. Uh, how, how do you address that point from this European perspective? I can give you my personal perspective. Yes, please. Which is not necessarily European. We but you are European, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very French. Um, for me, it's, it's so, let's go into um, disinformation. The issue here is very much an issue of market design. So, or yeah. Transaction design or exchange design. I mean, what does it mean? I it, it, it means that you have to understand why and how there is a spread of this information and uh, what, you what you would need to, um, to tweak in the design of uh, exchanges on the platform, say Facebook, in order to avoid or to make it more complicated or more costly in a way in terms of incentives and, and ability for this dis disinformation to, um, to spread. I, I can take a, an example, which is the uh, financial markets. 
there has been, a, I mean, rumors has been an issue in financial markets forever. And that has been even more an issue with the um, automation and digitization of, of transactions of our platforms in the, in the financial markets. And there have been a number of, uh, I hesitate to use regulatory, but uh, um, norms that have been created to stop the possibility of uh, markets going astray when there is a rumor or when, uh, when there is a, uh, an information which may have a strong impact. That's market design. Mm -hmm. And I think you, can, you could, um, I, I see you, and I think you could, you could very much translate such mechanisms, so it's design, into the uh, redesign of platforms. And how do you do that? It may be through regulation, uh, regulatory action or it could be through dialogue because it may be in the, um, to the advantage of everybody to have that. You, you had a, a rush to intervene. <laughs> that, does this clarify uh, your point, ma'am? So, gentleman to your left had a question. Yeah. Uh, hi, I'm, uh, my name is Richard Pope. I'm a fellow at Digital, Digital HKS. Uh, I wonder if there is a risk of the big tech companies distorting our response to this, whether that be development of new norms or regulation or rights, actually. There's another way to think about it. Um, I mean, if you look at the fines that have gone out under GDPR in the UK, they are to, to you know, literally the last half dozen on here. There's one for Facebook and one for Aggregate IQ. All the rest are like call centers, um, small charities, um, small companies that are misusing data. So how do we make sure that we don't just allow this conversation to be dominated by the bigger companies and we do think about the longer tail as well? No, it's, I agree. That's a good, great, that's a great point. <laughs> do you want to respond as well? No, I have no not. response to that. No, I just think it's like, I don't think anyone, I don't know that that was the target. And, but once you create a regulatory regime, like everyone's going to get swept up in it. So, uh, you know, m maybe it's a good thing that these charities are getting caught up in it. But if that wasn't your intention, well, that's what's happening now. Mm. And, it's, yeah. and, and like, I mean, everybody knows about GDPR because you all got mailing list notifications saying we had to like re-up you because yeah, yeah. of GDPR rules, which I know you immediately understood and cared for and did something about. No. It's like it's also like the cookie rules that the Europeans produce. Like everybody just says click and like go away, and nobody cares and nobody knows about cookies, and it just has had zero impact as far as I can tell. So, like, are we really driving things in a direction where it has impact, and what is the harm that we're creating? I actually think that we need regulatory regimes. I'm just kind of open to what they might look like, and I'm not sure that we know what they look like yet. Hmm. But we don't we don't know much more on this side of the Atlantic than on the other side. I don't think anybody or knows. Well, that's quite depressing, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still, it's still actually, but the thing is, it's actually still quite early. I mean, uh, you know, even the, so if you, if you felt like there was a large amount of misinformation, which I do, in the last election, you could begin to ask yourself, was there as much in this election? And is, the, is industry and the marketplace going to self-organize a response against that? Or does there need to be a regulatory intervention and I think if you thought in the first six months there definitely needs to be a regulatory intervention, I'm kind of like, not so clear. I think the companies have a pretty strong interest in trying to address these issues. Maybe they're going to get there on their own. And you might want to look at it over a five-year cycle or a 20-year cycle. And you might come to the conclusion, actually, our regulatory efforts are much better spent on another problem. 
rather than getting caught up on this one. So maybe the city level of regulation is a good one? You know, those cities that started to regulate Uber and, and grant rights, individual rights to uh, workers who otherwise totally disappear between technology and capitalism. I mean, there's, there's a missing part in your story, I find. Like, uh, it's the story of people. Uh, whether there is a lot of technology or not, you still have people with rights. And that's why I wanted to insist on the European perspective. It might seem naive, it might seem very encumbered, uh, and it is, actually, I think it is. <laughs> but uh, there's something that is, should not be treated as an encumbering commodity, it's people. And people suffer from technology. Uh, people want regulation, they just don't know how to do this. Always, they're starting to discover how to do it. And I agree to your point of norms rather than heavy regulations. It happens in pools, like you know, uh, labor pools, or in a, within a certain industry. You agree that yeah, we should treat people better than we do, and and that works. So I, I think actually on that, which is actually a dimension of the welfare state, believe it or not, uh, America and California had very interesting uh, lessons for Europe to be a bit more local, a bit uh, you know, interprofessionally oriented, and not brandish the big hammer all the time, uh, but I, I think we really deal with the, the new, I mean, classic issues posed by new technologies, and I thank you, Dave, for putting this uh, in perspective, in the technology uh, perspective. I thank you, Henry, for bringing the European perspective, and I thank you all for listening um, uh, politely and asking a nice question, and now I put it on to you to define the innovative solutions for uh, <laughs> tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash. <laughs>